Welcome to Data and Construction. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Josh Kanner, founder and CEO of New Metrics. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Hugh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so let's start with context. What does New Metrics do? So New Metrics is a software platform focused on using the data that we've now been gathering in the construction industry for years and putting it to use to help understand and predict risk in the area of safety across all the projects that a company is working on. So we combine data analytics with integration and some artificial intelligence and put some stuff on top called predictive analytics. The end result is contractors can understand Monday morning which 20% of their jobs are gonna have 80% of their safety risk that week and get specific actions, which we call prescriptive analytics, telling them what they can do to reduce that risk. So there's a lot in there. So I want to break some of that apart. But let's start with your own personal journey to where you, how you got here. So before New Metrics, you've been involved in building technology for construction and AEC generally for a, a lot of years, right? What brought you to New Metrics? And then I want to talk a little bit about the, the need you saw. Sure. What brought me to New Metrics is what brought me originally to the construction industry. And I guess the short way to explain it is with one word, and that word is beer. Behind a lot of big decisions, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was over a beer. I'm based up <laughs> in Boston and over a beer here in Davis Square. I got together with who at the time, he was just a friend of, friend of a friend. He became the co-founder of Vela Systems, a guy named Adam Omansky. 10 years as a construction manager, trained architect at a Cornell, been working as an owner's rep for the Four Seasons. And he was here in Boston doing a basically a program at MIT and Harvard around the Center for Real Estate and all this. And there, you know, it doesn't matter what decade you're in, Hugh, there's always new topics in, in you know, construction and engineering management. Mm-hmm. And he had put together a plan for a, for a product that he thought could help the construction industry by bringing mobile devices to the field in 2004. And so talked about that over a beer and my background at the time was in software and enterprise software and Mm -hmm. talked about how we could uh, try and make things as streamlined as possible for not just uh, doing work in the field, but then also connecting all the different stakeholders on a job site through a mobile and web platform. That's what became Vela Systems. And this is years before the iPhone, right? So you're talking about what devices were you thinking about about working on? Yeah, so that was that was part of the challenge and that's also yeah, what really dates me you. I'm I'm super old. I actually use this if I'm speaking in a crowd, I'll ask people if they remember this particular device. It was called the tablet PC. Do you remember that, Hugh? I I do. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, you may remember that there were certain tablets that were for, think of them as business or ruggedized environments. And they, it was, I don't know, I guess if you could drop all the good things about an iPad and take the opposite of that, that's what the tablet PC was. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was but it got, heavy, it was heavy, yeah. it, you know, had two hours of battery life and uh, you had to use a pen to use it. Um, and uh, yeah, it ran Windows OS operating system. 
But you learned some amazing lessons about executing in the field and what it takes to get busy people with tons to worry about to use your software, which over time, obviously, you know, helped out with what you're doing now, right? Yeah, I think fundamentally what it come what it comes down to, and you know, this was was my background as a software guy, as a product guy, is that there's a lot of problems and continue to be a lot of challenges in construction. And back in the mid 2000s, there really hadn't been a what we would now call mobile first kind of approach to solving them. In other words, there was a lot of software in the mid 2000s that was mobile enabled, yeah. but it was basically just taking what you had on a desktop and you know, taking pro prolog at the time, prolog punch list and moving it onto a mobile device doesn't really help you very much. The question yeah. is, and the way to really unlock value in our industry is how do you transform the way work gets done in the field by changing the way you do it? And one real specific example of that, Hugh, is we developed at Vela the concept of multiple disconnected field field folks whether they're the contractor, the architect, the owner, all working on top of the same 2D PDF plan sheet and being able to put push pins on it and then have those push pins be synchronized whenever they got internet access and tying those to quality issues, tying them to field observations, all you know, all that stuff. And that changed the way work can, and collaboration can happen in the field. So you guys were doing field collaboration before it was cool, in other words. We were beating our head against the wall, man. Yeah, I'll bet. No, I'll bet. <laughs> Nobody, yeah. I mean, it wasn't just the putting mobile devices in people's hands that people looked at us sideways. It was also the concept of collaboration and that, yeah, you can have a single punch list that with different permissions, everybody can be looking at and updating in near real time to make everybody faster. And, you know, some of these challenges are still persist. Certain jobs, certain kinds of work. There's different attitudes towards collaboration. So it wasn't just a it wasn't just a technology challenge. It was a how we do construction challenge. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. We still face that and, and every industry does. It takes so many different things to get learned and changed before big fundamental changes happen. So tell me about what took you from Vela to New Metrics. So it was at the end of the day, the this just surge of data. So hmm. what Vela, if you think about it, what we did is we were at kind of the front edge of the wave uh -huh. of helping the industry become more and more digital. Yep. Because now, I mean, if you take punch list or quality items, we also had a whole safety platform at Vela. You now have a bunch of data that used to be stuck on paper that's now digital. So as we moved to new metrics. I talked to a bunch of the CIOs, also the heads of operations and even field superintendents and, and project engineers that I was still friends with. And we started talking about, all right, now that you got all this digital data, what are the next challenges and how can you make, how can you get value out of it? And that's what became the building blocks for where we started the company, which we called it SmartVid to start mm -hmm. because the piece of data that everybody reported having a lot of challenges, problems with was photo and video content from everything from site walks to safety observations and more. And so we started to tackle that first. And then as we saw, that was just the beginning of the kind of data that can be useful for risk and understanding risk. Mm -hmm. And that's where we 
we uh, rebranded ourselves as New Metrics because photo and video content is important, but it's one piece of the overall puzzle that helps you deliver new ways of looking at risk. We're not too creative here. That's why we came up with the name New Metrics. That's, that's basically what it's, they are. It's it, You know what's great about that? I mean, I'll tell you, everybody wants you to have a super creative name because they, they say, you should have Nike. You should do this. Eh, you know, if you have a billion or so in an advertising to put behind making a, a weird name mean something, Godspeed. But especially in B2B, I spent 20 years in advertising. So I've thought about this one more than is probably healthy. And it's better to have a, a straight, here's what we do, rather than hoping yeah. people are going to know what your weirdo name means. Yeah, we, uh, had, we went through a whole naming exercise. I'm sure with your marketing background, you you know about these things. But I don't know, we wound up with all these names. I'm like, and we were like, is that a construction technology company or is that new <laughs> Italian handbags. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. We selling Italian handbags here. Or are we selling uh, software. Yeah, no, I know what yeah. you mean. It's funny. I work at Crosswalk from CSI, and and before I got here, they did the same thing. They started the conversation saying we should call it Crosswalk, and then some number of weeks later, they said, you know, I kind of like that Crosswalk idea, and yeah, it does and describe I mean, what it, we do. For us, it describes what we do perfectly. There's a mountain of data that construction companies are sitting on top of. We translate that mountain of data using both data transformation exercises, as well as AI of different types from computer vision through to understanding what's in the written words to, to uh, straight up analytics to create new metrics out of that data that can be used to understand and, and prevent risk in the area of safety. I see what you just did there. Thank new you. metrics. Uh, yeah. Yes. No, thank just you. Just having having fun with the name. Well, let's let's talk about what that looks like to a customer. So let's say I'm I'm mid-sized GC. I'm big enough to be sophisticated enough and have data and so on and so forth. Or let me rephrase that. I'm the right size for you. We can talk about what that means later. And I come to you and say, I, I need my safety to be better. I need my outcomes to be better. I need to have a better handle on it. I need to be able to show my people how to do a better job in a consistent way. What's that look like? Yeah, it's it's really straightforward. I mean, our I'll take as an example one of our customers. They're in the Philadelphia area. Contractor Warful. They won ENR Mid Atlantic Mid Size Contractor of the Year. They're not large. They're in the you know hundreds of millions, but mm -hmm. really well respected contractor. They're a Procore customer. We have pre built integrations with Procore. We have integrations with Autodesk, with Oracle, with a bunch of systems. They were able to get up and running with our safety analytics over a weekend. So they went from zero to 42 projects, getting insights into what kinds of risks were being seen using our visual AI and some of the other, some of the other AI that we have. And then they could, the next week, be able to do a bunch of different stuff, including save time because they now knew which jobs they needed to send resources to. And they could also, Warful was doing some really cool stuff where they're closing the loop back to their pre-qual program and checking and seeing what kinds of things were happening on site in actuality versus what have they had been promised. In particular, in the areas of things like oversight, there was sort of this concept of foreman to trade partner um, ratio that they wanted to be able to check. Were they actually getting the supervision that they had been promised? So uh, that, that's a really quick and dirty example. If you have an existing system like Procore, we can tie right in or Autodesk BIM 360 or Build. Or if you, for example, have imagery data that you store in box, we can plug into that right away. That's great. And what I'm hearing is that there's a, a process up front where you're, you're pretty flexible 
to be able to say, what are the metrics that that you think are driving your safety outcomes or that are important to you? So you just mentioned a ratio of, of foreman, a, a specific ratio that indicates their safety policies are being followed. And there's probably patterns in the industry, but there's also probably some specifics of how people bake it. How does that work? Do you guys have a consultative upfront? Is it kind of configurable or some combination of them? Yeah, it's we're at a really interesting time right now, Hugh, because we've been working on this problem of how do you translate raw data into predictive insights for now about three years. So we have over 1,500 years of outcome data, so over 15 centuries of project data. We use that in combination with a whole bunch of the data inputs to create 275 specific indicators of risk that could apply to a company. So to your question, is there a consultative part to what we do? What we do is we connect up to their systems as a part of a first phase of the work we do together. And we see which of those 275 might be appropriate. What do they have? Because every, you know, even if you've got, you know, Autodesk or Procore, you, you may use the systems a little differently, company to company. Yes. So we look at what kind of data you have, and then we can map these different features or predictors of risk to the data that you have in your systems, give you recommendations on also where you stand. The whole concept of benchmarking, you know, we talk about Moneyball for construction safety. We have benchmarks on some of those key factors, like the one I mentioned to you, which is the foreman to trade partner work hour ratio, where you can see where you are versus what we have seen to be high performing projects across the industry. This reminds me in an odd way of why back in my old life, I'm talking about advertising more today than I have in the last year, but the reason why agencies exist, at least the reason they did, is because you're able to aggregate, in that case, it was talent and experience, but here it's data. And you think about what a, a given contractor would be able to aggregate and then break down and turn into these indices that you've created. There's a limit to what a, even a really big contractor is going to be able to do because it's not what they do all day long. But the other one is not just the aggregation of data, which is already huge, but then you guys really spent a lot of time on the data science of this. I can only imagine how many times you chewed it up and said, well, what about this? And what, I mean, hypothesis testing, as well as really just letting the data kind of group itself. I mean, you think about where an external resource makes sense, this is one of those moments, right? Is that as a focused group doing only this, you're able to get more sophisticated and draw finer distinctions than is reasonably going to happen at almost any contractor. Yeah, that's a key concept behind this is that the more data, the better insights you can get. And we actually, we've with our own customers and with a, a group called the Predictive Analytics Strategic Council, which we started with Suffolk Construction, which is one of our core partners. We basically have helped like-minded companies get together. And by like-minded, I mean they're interested in how they can use data to better manage their businesses and compare best practices and compare data in an anonymized way. I think the key, one of the key things to you though, is it's also not just data. And I'll tell you, we've learned this lesson the hard way. You can't just take data and expect some amazingly interesting or, or really valuable insight to just emerge. It takes a lot of work 
to go from data to, as I mentioned, those 275 different features. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a bad analogy, but I think it's like Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? There's the, what is it, the 48 herbs and spices or something like that. There's a lot that goes into making the models. Mm-hmm. That's more that if you just threw all the data in together, it, it doesn't tell you much. Yeah, I not only agree. I mean, one of the things I was even getting at a minute ago is that the effort and attention that you and your team have spent. So yes, you've aggregated more data than is probably going to be true for most contractors, but then you spent years on it. There's a term called value discovery. I'm not sure how widely used that is, but when you get into the data and keep trying different things, what if we cut it this way? What if we exclude this? What if we combine these two together and see how that does or doesn't predict? And you're right, the data doesn't speak to you. The rare exception is really hard and that's unsupervised learning, but you kind of need to be a little narrow and you have to have a brutal amount of data for that to work, right? And it, it really depends on the question you're asking. Yeah, I mean, unsupervised learning, it can work for certain narrowly framed questions and narrowly framed problems. And yeah, with a crazy amount of data. But in your case, talk to me a little bit about the process that you went through as abstractly as you want to. I don't want you to give away the the uh, crown jewels here, but you guys went through and on and probably still are going through an ongoing sequence of discovering what's out there and working with the data. How did you organize to do that? Yeah, so I mean, it's a combination of a variety of both tools as well as uh, talent would be the way to think of it. On the tools side, you need to be able to. I, I think of it basically creating value from this. And at the end of the day, what this is about is identifying where risk is so our customers can react to it and can react to it in a much more efficient way than they could before. So save time and money and ultimately reduce their incident rate and lower their insurance costs because they're able to show the data and also show the, their improved results. Um, so on the tools side, and this is where we got started as SmartVid, Having the ability to actually interrogate raw data, look at it, and then have it have it speak to you. So looking at, for example, all the photos like Warfel had or GE Dunn has across their jobs and being able to see indicators of risk without humans, without people having to do anything. So for example, picking out that, holy crap, there's a lot of work at height going on, or we're entering, we're actually, we see form work. So we know we're going into basically a pretty risky phase of work. Those visual indicators, now that we've built these computer vision models to detect them, those wind up being very helpful in terms of understanding what your risk trend is on a job. That doesn't rely on anybody's process for doing checklists or filling out field forms or anything like that. So that's one of the tools. And on the talent side, just to round it out, We've found, we've aggressively hired. Some folks have found us. Like we're a group of folks that understands and is really, really is passionate about the construction industry. Some of the folks on our executive team have 30 years as in the industry and have a passion about using data. Actually, one of the guys on our team, he's the leader of our overall predictive strategy. He got into predictive analytics analytics because he was on a job. He was actually project manager on a project and he had a fatality on the job and he looked around and all the safety data that they had been gathering was stuck on paper punch cards stuck in in their in their filing cabinets and he made a commitment at that point in his career that 
He was going to do things differently. And uh, when you think about tools and talent, that's the kind of the combination that has allowed us to deliver what we can deliver. You know, you you put your finger on on something that the industry generally is. I keep hearing this. It's the, the industry is is coming up against, and that is, where do you find people that have an understanding and appreciation for the complexity of construction that also understand a have the sort of hypothesis led data culture view of the world, but also know how to use the tools? Because it sounds like in, in at least one case of what you were describing. Two of those three were there, deep experience as well as, as a, at least a desire to, to, to recast how he looked at things. But presumably the, the, the person in question, the head of your uh, predictive unit, wasn't a, a data science PhD. So have you guys found a, a way and found a need and, and kind of done this where you're taking people with one of the two, the, the data capability or the construction experience and matching the two? and have you found that one is one way is better than the other? In other words, it's better to take someone with deep construction experience and teach them data science versus someone with data science trying to get them to understand how construction works. That's a great question, Hugh. And I've seen it work both ways, frankly. I think the key is that person's desire to really understand the nuance of the other side whether it's you're in construction going into data science or you're in data science going into construction. You need both. And it, I, we have seen, we've seen challenges with both. Construction folks who don't understand or have the patience for data science will throw up their hands. Right. And data scientists will say, well, this data is not telling me anything. Well, of course it's not because you haven't transformed it into anything useful that makes sense in a construction context. So at the risk of not giving you an answer, I'm telling you it's both. <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> and, I, I think the answer you're giving me is humility, is either direction has to believe the other one is valid and worth giving the yeah. time to understand. Because I think both sides think that the other one is simpler than it is. That's a great way to put it, you. Yeah, it's humility and also having a, having an open mind. It's like the willingness to explore. That's great. And when you look for folks as you grow your team, is, is that what, what, I mean, we may have just answered the question, but what, what do you look for? We look for, for passion, mm-hmm. folks who are purpose-driven, not just around construction, but about making change happen. So I think one of the things that Maybe it's not unique to construction, but man, we sure we sure do feel it in this industry is that you've got to have a basic a stubbornness to you to keep pushing forward because every company, and even as you go across different you know sub verticals within construction, going we have we have now Hugh, for example, we're not just in commercial construction. We just this year we have our first first big customers in heavy and civil and water and infrastructure and even across those dimensions, everybody thinks, well, hey, we're different, you know? So you got to, it's a combination of those factors. A bit of stubbornness and, and passion to, to make change happen are, are key. Actually, I, I always tell this story, but when we started Vela Systems, it took us 80, 80 sales calls to get the first customer to say they were even interested in an electronic mobile first punch list tool. <laughs> and, you know, if we had done, yeah, I mean, you, you know, the lean startup methodology, right? But it, we should have been running the other way. So it, it's that if we had been lean, followed that approach. But it, certain things, certain ideas, 
you just know they're they're right. You know they're going to happen. It's a question of of making sure they work. Usually, it's because they're too complicated; they don't work. Making sure they're simple enough to work, and partnering with the right customers who can help you get on the right path, both product as well as you know value wise. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I had a a, a friend of mine once said that when it comes to technology, being wrong and being early look the same. And if you believe mm-hmm. in what you're doing it, and by that point of new metrics or, or Vela for that matter, you guys had enough, you knew enough about the industry and about where the rest of ec- the economy had already gone that I think you had a reason to, to have faith in it and stick it out. But it is tough in the beginning, isn't it? It is. I, I like that quote, to it, wrong and early look the same. I, yeah. Yeah. That's true. It, it, so it may have started with a beer, but it, there were probably a couple along the way to, to keep you guys going. Indeed. I want to dig in to this question of prescriptive analytics and talk a little bit about what you mean by that, because I really like the term. So when you say that, how, what does that look like to a contractor? Yeah. So as I mentioned, there are a whole bunch of different features that can drive the predictions coming out of our predictive engine. Those all tie back to what you, you can think of as reasons. So there's a reason why this job is riskier this week. Um, and those reasons, by the way, are all normalized. In other words, they're ratios. So it, it's because it's, you can't feed the predictive engine stuff that has a, in it, for example, a proxy for job site size, because every man hour worked is a lottery ticket for some kind of incident. So it will skew towards the bigger jobs. So we right. actually were very purposeful in how that works. So each of those reasons, let's take, you know, the... Another one could be, and our head of predictive, a guy named Tim Gaddy, he, he actually gave a class on this at Procore Groundbreak this year. We introduced a few of these key metrics that we talked about. One of them is, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's actually inc- it's incident severity. Mm-hmm. And then there's average incident rate. So each of the reasons ties back to a specific action that you can take. So and this is where the sort of the counterintuitive part comes in, whether it's incidents or actually observation rate is another one. Some of the actions are really simple. It's, we can say, well, hey, listen, it looks like you are not actually in the field, your team, whether it's your safety team or it should be the whole project team and their responsibility. There aren't enough observations being made in the field around safety to keep up with the man hours of work being done either by your staff. So there's an observation to staff hours rate as well as by your trade partners. So there's an observation rate to craft hours worked rate Mm -hmm. there. The recommendation, the prescription is really easy. Go do more observations and make sure they're meaningful. So it, that's an example of a prescription that it's real simple. But by knowing what that threshold is of what the right rate is of observations to hours worked, mm-hmm. you can actually get much more specific and much more proactive than you could be in the past where you might have said, well, everybody should just do one. Is one enough? I don't know. It's not actually if the job is really ramping. So, that, so that's one specific example. That's a great example. And I think there's something in there that is, is worth folks that think about data really understanding. And that is, you guys spent the time to dig back and say, what can we do about it? Or what is the why? I, I quote the Simon Sinek thing all the time. 
this this why like and what you guys have been able to do is drill from things that can be measured back to what you can do about it and i think that's really really exciting I mean, that's the promise of data right it's not just i'm seeing patterns and i'm seeing correlations but i can point to the underlying behavior that it relates to and at the end of the day very often people are asking folks in the field or folks in the office or wherever it is to do something different and to the degree you can marry that and say, well, the data says that if you do this, it'll have this impact, plus or minus a bit. Um, that's that's a really big step forward, I think, when we talk about data. And I think there's a lot of areas across the ecosystem where people are hungry for the ability to do that, to be able to marry the data that's been collected to an outcome and a, an action you can you can take to make that outcome better. That's a great connecting of dots that that um, I'm really excited about. Yeah, it's been interesting, Hugh, because sometimes the actions to be taken aren't just by the project team on the ground. Right. Some actions may actually, and this gets back to your question earlier, is it a consultative approach? When we're working with a client, you know, to get them up and running, we'll pull in as much data as they have. Sometimes we pull in schedule data and tie it back to safety outcomes. And this is an example of where sometimes the sphere, the scope of these actions are, again, outside of the boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. We've seen where certain kinds of certain schedules are actually more prone to safety problems than others. One specific example there is, and it's going to sound obvious when I say it, but trade stacking. So if you have multiple activities with different trades all going at the same time, we've seen in our predictive models that there is a sort of a inflection point where you get to more than a certain number of trades all working at the same time and the safety risk goes through the roof. Well, that's a problem you got to figure out ahead of time and make sure you don't create for yourself. Longest schedule duration items also contribute. So anyway, those are, I just give those as examples of these actions because delivering on a project, it's not just the guys on the site. There's a whole bunch of, I mean, you know this already, but there's all the planning that went into it. And sometimes that planning doesn't set you up for success either. That makes a lot of sense. Have you found that when people are looking at trade stacking, that there are some combinations that are more or less likely to lead to problems? Or is that that where you want to go next? So there's like a concept of stacking in time. And then there's also a concept of stacking in physical space. And so we have seen related, like when you can tie it back to locations, if there's stacking going on in physical space, and that can tie to, you know, different different trades working at different times. Maybe you have, you know, as rough-ins going on one floor, there's MEP on another and it's above them. And so you, that physical space kind of stacking has also been seen to be predictive. Again, no surprise there, but if you've got the data, no individual person can be thinking about this all the time. And it right. helps it helps bring those to light. Well, data, data helps to win arguments, right? Even if it may be logical, the opposite can be argued if it's only experience and logic and, and who's got the loudest voice. Josh, this has been really great. I really appreciated how you guys have approached data, how you guys have really used it to build what is a pretty pretty badass um, platform. So thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Hugh. And you know, it's uh, it's it's great to be on podcasts like this. Now, having been in the industry, this is I think it's going to be my seventeenth year. I'm just pleased that folks like you exist to talk about all the good work that's going on in construction to bring new tools out to an industry that has made a ton of progress in the last 15 years, and there's still plenty more to go. Thank you for listening to the Data in Construction podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast provider. And if you're interested in learning more about data in construction, sign up for our monthly skills webinars or the data in construction book coming out later this year. You'll find signups for both in the podcast notes. Thank you.